some things. So before we get into the word here together, let's just turn to the Lord. Father, we thank you so much and we pray, God, um, for this time. God, just so grateful that you have given us your word. Not only did you give it, you've defended it for all these years and protected it and preserved it and made it to where we can have um, the word of God in our hands here. And uh, I echo the, the Thessalonians where Paul said that he, um, he commended them because they received the word not as the word of man, but as the word of God. And that is our heart here at Calvary, and just as believers, is to honor you. Lord, we want to honor you. We want to approach the study of your word with the reverence that it deserves. Lord, make this book speak to us. Show us who we are. Show us who you are. Help us to fall more in love with Jesus. Help us not just to have brain knowledge, um, but knowledge that is spiritual. And so we ask that you would do these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, okay, baptisms, the doctrine of baptisms. Uh, what is it? You know, who should be baptized? Is it, you know, you see this eight-point outline. Uh, don't get scared of an eight-point outline. I mean, you think, oh my goodness, this is going to be something. But, you know, some of them will go pretty quickly here. So let's just get right into it. We're going to start with a question that just kind of comes up. Um, uh, is it an ordinance or is it a sacrament, right? Is it an ordinance or a sacrament? You've heard those terms. Um, simply the arguments, you know, kind of based around, you know, what is a sacrament? A sacrament is... Uh, the Roman Catholic Church calls uh, baptisms in the Lord's Supper uh, or the Eucharist, they call those sacraments. Um, they teach that sacraments actually transmit the grace of God to somebody in the sense of, uh, you know, when you partake in these sacraments that they actually, you know, purify you, they move you along closer to being acceptable to God. Um, they're not just symbols in the Catholic Church. They're actually modes of God, you know, transmitting grace to his people. And this is all based off of, you know, the, the Catholic catechism. And, and this is what, you know, the Catholic Church is, at least at the top of it, is practicing, uh, you know, still today. Protestants, uh, some call baptism and the Lord's Supper ordinances because Christ ordained them. It's that simple. Christ really said that there was two things that the church should be involved in, uh, and he said it was the Lord's Supper and baptisms. Some Protestants make a case for feet washing and saying, well, Christ ordained that. He says, as you see me do, you do likewise. And so they'll have feet washing services based on that scripture. Um, and so I thought we'd try that today. So hopefully you got your feet all clean and I'm just kidding. We're not going to try that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Lord have mercy. So that could be good though. I mean, that could be a good time of, of bonding. You know what I mean? Now the definition of a sacrament, you see it here before you. If you look up dictionary, this is Merriam-Webster's, one of their <laughs> definitions. A Christian rite such as the baptism or the Eucharist that is believed to have been ordained by Christ and that is held to be a means of divine grace or 
to be a sign or symbol of a spiritual reality. So what they've done is, is Merriam-Webster has the Protestant and the Catholic definition both in their, in their definition there. That brings me to the conclusion that it's not really that big of a deal to me what you call it. What's important is what you understand that it is, right? Now, the Baptists, you know, as, as a denomination are incredibly particular about this. If you go to a Baptist church and you say, hey, do you observe the sacrament? They'll say, no, 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 we, it's an ordinance. They're particular about it because... They're very literal and, and, you know, about, they're precise in their definitions. And and there's something to be said for that. Um, I kind of take more of an attitude of just whatever you call it, so long as you understand um, that, um, you know, what it is. And we're going to talk about more what it is when we get to the outline point um, later that deals with that. So number two, is it a major doctrine? Well, there are... A lot of churches that major on the majors, they believe the, you know, central essentials of the Christian faith, um, you know, salvation is by grace through faith, not works. Um, Jesus is God in the flesh. They believe the Trinity. They believe the inerrancy of scriptures uh, and so on. And the, but you'll still find even with them in, in, you know, conservative people that hold to the essentials that you know, there's variants. There's some that baptize infants. There's some that baptize, you know, in just different methods, different modes. Some immerse people, some sprinkle people. Um, so is it a major doctrine? Well, my answer to this, my position, and you could disagree with it. Um, this is my opinion, is it's not something to divide over. Um, I, don't, I don't think we should divide over it. I think if somebody, you know, if they hold to the essentials of the cross, of the gospel, of how salvation uh, happens and, and what they think about the word of God, I think that, you know, you know, we're kind of united in those things, and I think we should major on those rather than being divisive uh, over different things. Now, really the issue is this, though, is if you are, um, if you hold a position that baptism is required for salvation, then this becomes an issue of a major because you're no longer talking about baptisms. Now you're actually talking about the doctrine of salvation. You're actually saying salvation happens by works if you're saying baptism is required for salvation. You're saying salvation is not by grace through faith, it's by grace through faith and baptism, right? So then you're getting into a different area, which is a major doctrine. Um, but just in itself, if, you know, if we're all on the same page about the gospel and what Christ said about salvation, but we're, we're saying, oh, I like to sprinkle, I like to, I like to immerse, I like to have a water slide going out of the window into a pool. Well, I don't know about that, but bless you. <laughs> you guys seen that picture online? The church, the new mega church is going to have baptisms. They got this huge water slide going down. There's, some of them actually do stuff like that. But anyway, I don't think it's something to divide over, you know, um, unless somebody is telling you it has to be done. Here comes another question. Sometimes people go from one denomination to another, a different church from another, and they say, you know, they're all, you know, on board with all the essential Christian doctrines, but they'll say, why don't you get baptized again in our church? And some people have a big problem with that. Um, should you have a big problem with that? I think, you know, you know, I just think for the conscience of the church, maybe that you're part of, maybe why not just go ahead and do it? I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't hurt you to do it. If they're telling you you're not saved unless you get baptized in their church, maybe you should find a different church, you know, because they're adding works to the doctrine of salvation. And I think that's a major issue that you should avoid a church that would do that. Um, but if it's just a matter of conscience, like, hey, why don't you come get identified with this body of Christ? Why don't you, you know, say that you're, you know, just come do it, you know? And, and uh, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think you can be easygoing, you know, when it comes to that. The mode and meaning of, I'm sorry, I skipped one, didn't I? Uh, so point number three, uh, believers... 
baptism or infant baptism? Uh, question mark, right? Uh, believers is typically called a Baptistic position, where infant baptism is called pedo-baptist, uh, pedo-baptistic position, right? So which one? Well, my position is a Baptistic position, namely that baptism is appropriately administered only to those who give a believable profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And we're going to hear more about this in point five. So that's our position here. I do want to make a note that um, there are careful Protestant theologians that do make a case for infant baptism. It's long. It's, you know, it's, it's a big thing to, you know, to wrap around, and, and I've traced it through to the best of my understanding. It's, but there are. Uh, Louis Burkhoff and his uh, systematic theology, um, he's a Protestant that makes a good case for it. So if you want to study, you know, uh, that, it is out there. The mode and meaning of baptism, essentially, you know, how do you do it and what does it mean? So, some New Testament scripture uh, that points to immersion. I'm going to go through a bunch of different Bible verses here. You're going to see them uh, put up on the screen. So I want you to take your Bible and go around to these different verses. And if you have one, um, or if it's on your phone or whatever, um, go and I want you to see these verses for yourself. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like one brought to you, just raise your hand right now. Somebody will bring one to you if you'd like one. Anybody here? Everybody's got one? Good enough. Okay. It's the pastor's favorite sound in the world, the Bible flipping pages. That's pretty much something, right? Every single person, 100% of the people in here have a Bible either with them or on their phone. My goodness. That's, that is awesome. Okay, so here's some New Testament scriptures pointing to the case of immersion. You know what I mean by immersion, right? Dunking all the way underwater, right? Um, let's look at Mark chapter 1, verse 5 first. Mark chapter 1, verse 5. And what it says here is, uh, then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Who's him in that passage, by the way? John the Baptist. Yeah, great job, Claire. All right, awesome. So it says that all the people in the land of Judea were going out being baptized by him with his water bottle. He's sprinkling people. No, no, he's baptizing them in the river. He's dunking them in the river, right? Mark chapter 1, verse 10. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Who's the him in that verse? Jesus. Jesus. Oh, you guys saw the capital H. Uh, but yes, talking about Jesus at his baptism. And it says he's coming up from the water. We're looking at that saying that must be that he was immersed. I mean, it must be. He's coming up from the water, you know. You put these things all together and you start to get a picture, right? By the way, there's no verse in the Bible that says you have to immerse people. So what we do is we look at just how were they doing it, right? How was it happening? John chapter 3, verse 23. John chapter 3, verse 23 says, Now John was baptizing in uh, Anon near uh, Salim, because there was much water there and they came and were baptized. So there again, it seems like it, there you know, needed to be a lot of water to do it. That's what it seems like. Acts chapter 8, uh, verses 36 and then 38 through 39. We'll just look at the ones that deal with this. Verse 36 in chapter 8 of the book of Acts.
Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? So the idea is, is that, you know, Philip's with the Ethiopian eunuch, and he didn't just say, I believe, why don't you just get your flask and just sprinkle me? I mean, they were going on the road in his chariot, and then eventually they got to like a body of water that was, you know, apparently sizable enough to baptize him. And he said, see, there's some water. So it's just all making a case for immersion. Verse 38. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Now, when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went upon his way rejoicing. I love that account of there. Now, the Greek word baptize, uh, you know, the Bible's written in Koine Greek, the New Testament, right? The Old Testament's written in Hebrew. There's some Aramaic. It's all translated into English. The Greek word in the New Testament translated baptize is pretty close to the word baptize. It's the word baptizo, right? Um, it's a verb, you know, to, to baptizo. And what it means, the definition of it is, baptizo means to plunge, to dip, to immerse something in water. So the very definition of the word, plus all these verses, uh, lends to uh, immersion. So now I want to show you kind of the case for the symbolism. We're still talking about immersion, but we're going to make a case now for immersion by the symbolism of what baptism symbolizes. Turn to your Bible to Romans chapter 6, please. Romans chapter 6. Baptism symbolizes union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, that seems to require immersion. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 4. Paul says, Or do you not know that as many of us as were being baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. So the case for immersion, because the symbolism is, is that you're buried with Christ right? There's a, uh, I was reading Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology in preparation for this message, and he talks about a church that he and his wife visited in England one time, and this church's baptismal was shaped like a coffin, and it was pretty interesting. They, you know, they, it was right before the, the altar, you know, or the podium or whatever you'd call it, the lectern, and it was shaped as a coffin. And, you know, the first time they saw it, they thought, oh, well, my goodness, you know. But that's the symbol. Is, I mean, it actually really symbolizes what's going on is you're identifying with Christ and his death, burial, and then the resurrection, right? You're coming back up, uh, a new creation, right? So it's really a beautiful picture. Now, he says that the church moved eventually to a different location, but they didn't recreate the, the coffin baptismal. I don't know if, why they decided to leave it behind, but, but uh, that's the case. Now, Water in the scriptures is the, it's a lot of times is used, you know, as a symbol. It's used as a symbol of the Holy Spirit, um, the washing of the word, regeneration. It's also used as a picture of judgment, isn't it? Right? You think about the waters of judgment that, you know, what about uh, Noah's Ark, right? It was like uh, Noah preached for, you know, hundreds, some years and said, you know, God's judgment's coming. And God's judgment did come in the form of a flood to everybody except for those that were in the ark, right? So God's, God, so water is also a picture of judgment. 
And in the context of those verses we just read in Romans, that fits because it's a picture of your sins have been judged. You're going and your sins have been judged fully, but you, just like those in the ark, come back up out of it, right? And it's a beautiful picture. That's what baptism is, is uh, all my sins, all, I've been, they've been judged at the cross once for all. I'm coming out and I'm washed. Um, so it's the symbol of uh, judgment. It's uh, a picture of identifying with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, also in Colossians chapter 2, verse 12, if you want to turn there, you can. I'm just going to read it. <clears throat> it says, Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. I always used to think that was called galoshes when I was a kid. It's like, wow, that's, <laughs> I like those. Colossians chapter 2, verse 12 says uh, that we were buried with him in baptism in that which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. You see the symbolism of this? So the case for immersion based on the symbolism of what's going on. Now, there's an objection that sometimes people will bring to this and they'll say, well, immersion isn't needed um, as the main symbol of baptism is actually just cleansing from sin. And they base that on Titus 3, 5 um, and other verses. Titus 3, 5 says, um, Paul talking about how we are saved. Titus 3, 5 says, Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. So people will, that say immersion isn't really necessary they'll use that verse and say, actually, the symbol of baptism is just washing and regeneration. So we might as well just sprinkle people because it, it symbolizes the same thing. Um, you know, Acts twenty two sixteen 16 um, says, arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. People will use this case to say the main picture of baptism is cleansing. Well, that's not the case. I don't think that does full justice to the text because we just read these verses in Romans and Colossians that said that the symbol of baptism is more than just washing. And, and so I don't think that does justice to the text. I think if you want to do justice to the New Testament, I think it lends itself towards immersion. Um, <clears throat> so the mode, immersion, the meaning, it's symbol of union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection under God's judgment of sin, raised to new life because you're new in Christ, also symbolizing the washing and cleansing of unrighteousness and sin. So it's all those things at once. So I'm excited for you, you know, that are going to get baptized. This is such a beautiful picture. Like, I, I love getting baptized. I didn't get baptized until I was an adult. I was baptized as an infant, you know, I guess. And then I, I waited until, um, you know, later on and, uh, until I understood what I was doing. And I was, I was very convicted that um, that was important. Now that brings us to the next uh, subject uh, here, the subjects of baptism. Who should be baptized? Should it be infants? Should it be... Uh, you know, unbelievers? I mean, should it be everybody in a town? That's what used to happen, 1500s, 1400s, in, you know, in Europe and different places. If you were just born in a, in a Lutheran town, you were just baptized into the church. Uh, Switzerland, different places, that, that was common. Um, so who should be baptized? Well, let's look at the case from the New Testament. Turn to Matthew chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 2 through 6. Matthew chapter 3, starting at verse 2. Back to that scene with Jesus at Jesus' baptism with John the Baptist there. It says, um, 
repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Yuck. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. So what we can tell there is those people going to be baptized had... um, they were repenting of their sins, right? They had repented of their sins and uh, they'd confessed their sins and they saw it as a symbol of uh, confession and repentance, right? So that would eliminate right away. Should we just baptize just anybody, you know? Should the whole town get baptized? I don't know. Have they repented of their sins? You know, I'm not sure. Reminds me of a baptism that I did one time for a guy. I was planning to baptize his wife. And then the husband came that day and he says, baptize me also. And I didn't know anything about the guy. And, uh, you know, I felt pretty convicted about it afterwards that I shouldn't have done it because I'd heard him talking later. He obviously didn't understand the gospel. He didn't know anything about Jesus, really. Uh, you know, he had some really bizarre spiritual views. And, uh, you know, and, but here I baptized him. I gave them, him this assurance, you know, that he... You know, because he thought, well, if you just do the the action of it, like you're right with Jesus. He kind of was like a covering all your bases kind of guy. Like I'll get the Catholic to come in and and read me my last rites. I'll get baptized. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll meditate. I'll do all, you know, he was like that. He thought, might as well just try to take it, try to get it all, you know, make sure if there is a God, you know, you know, we'll make sure he's happy. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. So the first instance there, it's connected with repentance and confession of sins. You know what repentance means, right? By the way, it means turning from your sin. Change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. Matthew 28, verse 19. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. After uh, This is right at the end of the Gospels, before he ascends. Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So it's those, if you're going to baptize somebody, who's baptized? Those that are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Um, they need to understand this. Uh, you, know, you could say, well, I've baptized my infant in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Um, so we're just making a case uh, here. It seems like um, Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations and then baptize who? Disciples. Disciples. Seems a clear reading of the scripture. Now, Acts chapter 8, verse 12, uh, back in Acts. I'm sorry, Acts 2.41 first. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Those who gladly received his word were what? Baptized. And about that day, 3,000 souls were added to them. Wow. Now, some people that make a case for sprinkling, they use that verse and they say, how could you baptize 3,000 in one day? You'd have to sprinkle them. Well, might I refer you to Corona Del Mar Calvary Chapel baptisms that baptize, you know, Jack Hibbs just recently baptized like how many thousands of people in one day? Chuck Smith baptized. I mean, there are pictures, we have one back there of thousands of people. So I, I don't think that's a good case for sprinkling saying, see, how could they, you know, no, you can get them in the water. Um, you could dunk them. Acts chapter 8, verse 12 now. 
Acts chapter 8, verse 12 says, But when they believed Philip, Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the same of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. So you see the uh, connection there between belief and baptism, right? Um, after they believed, then they were baptized. That's kind of the whole order that you see all through the New Testament is belief and baptism, belief and baptism. It's, they follow each other. Acts chapter 10 now, verses 44 through 48. This is one of my favorite scenes here in, in the, well, there's a lot of them, but I like this scene here. While Peter was still speaking, Acts chapter 10, verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word, heard the word and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. What a cool scene. Peter's preaching the word. The Holy Spirit falls on people. He doesn't even say, hey, let's pray for the Holy Spirit to come upon people. He doesn't even, he doesn't even do any of those Benny Hinn tricks where he comes up with his coat and like, you know, that, that phony baloney stuff. <laughs> he, does, he does nothing like that. He's just preaching the word and the Holy Spirit falls upon everybody and they start speaking in tongues. They start, you know, it's like uh, Pentecost too, all right? And then notice that Peter commands them to be baptized there. That, that's a little addition to our study, right? Peter commanded them. Uh, said, go do it. Some people kind of think of it as a subjective thing, but it's actually, I don't know if you've noticed yet, it's, it's an imperative through the scriptures. Peter commands them here. Jesus says, go do this. Uh, these aren't options. You know, these are, you know, if you want to be obedient. Acts chapter 16, verses 14 through 15 now. Oh, this is a good scene too, isn't it? Down by the river. This is where Paul first found this gal. Acts chapter 16, verses 14 through 15 says, Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. That's Paul talking. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she persuaded us. I misspoke. That wasn't Paul speaking. That's Luke speaking there. Notice that verse, 40, or, uh, verse 14 there. Verse 15. And when, she, uh, and when she and her whole household were baptized, she begged us saying, come stay here. So on. So the Lord opened her heart. Notice the sequence of events. The, she heard Paul preaching. She heard the guys preaching the word. The Lord opened her heart. Then she was baptized. The Lord opened her heart to believe the things. By the way, in order to believe the gospel, to believe Jesus Christ, the Lord has to open your heart. Do you know that? Sometimes you have family members, you really wish they'd get saved, and you're praying, God, I wish they'd get saved. God, maybe you should add to your prayer, Lord, open their heart, you know, that they will get saved. It kind of helps you to not get so frustrated with people that you know you can't really wrestle them into the kingdom so much. You know, you've got to really get on your knees and, and you're going to see more people get saved around you from your prayer closet than you are from trying to kick them, you know. So 
So that's the case, um, you know, for who gets baptized. Um, there are more. These are some of the highlights. I think it just really points to believers. I mean, that's why I take a Baptistic position is I really think it points to believers just looking at these things here. Now, the case for the meaning of baptism from the New Testament. Okay, the meaning of baptism. It's an outward symbol. Here's, here's our position. It's the outward symbol of the beginning of the Christian life. And so, therefore, it should only be given to the evidence of those that are truly saved. You know, it's, if they have evidence they're saved, why would you want to give somebody the symbol of the beginning of the Christian life if you're not sure if they're saved, right? And so, it's an outward symbol of an inward reality. That's how I like to put it. It's an outward symbol of an inward reality. I've been born again, and so this symbolizes death to the old self and alive in Christ and new creation. Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. <clears throat> He says, for as many of you as were, this is Galatians 3, 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, right? So what's the meaning of it? It's a symbol that you have put on Christ, right? Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 4, again, you don't need to turn back there because you remember it by now, um, but he said, uh, we were baptized into his death. That's the symbol. It's the symbolism. Obviously, when you get baptized, you don't um, go in your time machine back 2,000 plus years ago to Jerusalem, you know what I mean, hang on the cross with him, obviously. You know, that's, that's a weird thought. But it's obviously a symbol where he says you're baptized into his death. Colossians chapter 2, 12 again, uh, same verse we already read. Again, it gets at the symbolism that we were buried with him in baptism. Uh, now, let me give you an alternative view to this. The Roman Catholic view... It says baptism should be administered to infants as baptism is necessary for salvation and that the act of baptism itself causes regeneration. Okay? So, you know, if anybody's studied Catholic doctrine, you know, faithfully, they'll tell you that you're saved when you get baptized. That's when you get saved. It's a, it's, and, and here's the thing about it. I was reading, uh, you know, from the Catholic Catechism and um, some of their theologians and when it comes to partaking in the graces and the sacraments in the Catholic Church, faith isn't even really the issue. It's just, if you had this done to you, that's it, right? So faith isn't even really the issue in the Catholic Church. Uh, it's administered by a priest, um, yet in unusual circumstances, deacons, lay people, uh, or even unbelievers can perform a baptism. Sacraments, this is important to latch a hold of, sacraments work, according to Catholic theology, apart from the faith of the people participating in the ritual or in the sacrament. So in other words, it's, it's very much, we saw an illustration in a documentary we were watching last night, and it's kind of crude, but it, it kind of conveys the point. It's like a vending machine. If you go put a quarter in it and you push a button, the thing comes out that you get. It's a mechanical sort of thing. If you baptize your kid, it's just a mechanical thing. They get saved. When you get baptized, it's just mechanical. The graces come through the sacraments, and then you're saved. Now, here's our response to the Roman Catholic view, okay? Salvation depends on faith alone, not on works. And this is, a, you know, this is the crux of the Protestant Reformation, right? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. I want you to look at this, if you would. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. If you haven't outlined or highlighted this in your Bible, this is a good one. Um, and it's a good memory verse. This was about the first memory verse that my pastor ever had me go to. He had me go to here and then Romans 12, 1 and 2. So understand the gospel and then offer your life a living sacrifice. 
Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So that is just such a clear delineation of the gospel, that salvation comes to you as a gift. It's not of works, it says right there. And nobody can boast. Nobody can, nobody can rest on anything that they did. There's no reason, if somebody said, Adam, why are you going to go to heaven tonight? There's not one thing I can say that I did. You know, the only thing I've done is just receive. You know? I just received this gift. Now, so if, if Roman Catholic theology is teaching that the sacraments, uh, baptism included, are required plus faith, now, they teach that faith in Jesus Christ is required, and they say that, that you're saved by faith in Jesus Christ, but the sacraments are required to complete this salvation. You work it out uh, by going through these different steps, and they're means of imparting grace. Now, both of those things can't be true, right? So Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says this, The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life, right? So that's our response to the, the Roman Catholic position is that salvation comes by grace through faith, not through works. And so if you add any work to the gospel, um, you've perverted and corrupted the gospel. It's no longer the same gospel. Now, Paul actually takes up this argument in the book of Galatians. I won't have you go to these verses just for time's sake, but has everybody read Galatians? Essentially, the point of the book of Galatians is Paul is confronting a church that began in the gospel, but yet some people followed behind Paul and started convincing them, trying to convince them that they needed to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses, plus have faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, it's very, very similar to Roman Catholic teaching. It really is, saying you need to have faith plus works. And so Paul comes to the Galatians and he writes the letter of Galatians to them to address that problem. They were trying to convince people that they had to be circumcised to keep the law of Moses. So Paul says, look, those people that are trying to tell you that you need to be circumcised, I wish that they would castrate themselves. He's pretty blunt about it, right? And so he takes up that argument there, and it's a very similar argument because it really it just fits the argument of adding any work to salvation. He says, you foolish Galatians, who bewitched you that you should so easily turn from the grace of God back to works? paraphrasing a little bit, but that's the point of that verse, right? So you can check those out for yourself. Just read the book of Galatians later and you'll, with that in mind, the whole thing is about, I can't believe that you've turned from the gospel of grace to works again. I, you were under this bondage. You, you came out, you understood the gospel and now you're back in it again. Uh, that's the whole tone of Galatians, right? So the conclusion of that section there, just, you know, there's no work required for salvation. Therefore, baptism is not necessary for salvation. So uh, that also implies into it, you know, that's the meaning, but it implies why would you baptize an infant? You know, I've had people ask me as a pastor, they say, will you baptize them? I say, I think you're just superstitious. Why do you think that's going to, what do you think that's going to do for them? You know, um, my sister-in-law asked me one time and I don't think she fully understood, you know, what it was. And like, I, I'm convicted not to do that because I don't want to give you the assurance that your kid is somehow, you know, now, separate conversation, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says, if you've got believing parents, so long as the kid, this is the way I understand this, is so long as the kid's in a believing, you've got believing parents, they're kind of covered by the grace of God until they get to 
an age of where they're, you know, making decisions. You know, who knows what that age is? It doesn't mean that they're sinless, as some people teach. Well, kids are innocent and they become sinners later. That's not what the Bible says. But there is some sort of blessing upon them for a believer, you know, if you have believing parents, uh, until they get to the age of starting to be able to make decisions. You can flesh that out in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The alternative, the Protestant paedo-baptist view, um, you know, they base it on the circumcision argument. You know, they'll say, well, here's kind, of, here's kind of the case. I'll give it to you in a nutshell of why baptize infants. They say, well, it's very similar to circumcision. Now, in the covenant of Israel, they circumcised kids. And so it's like circumcision. So this is why we baptize infants. They'll use that as part of it. My response to that is Israel and the church are different. They're not the same sort of thing. And in fact, they circumcised unbelievers as well. And so I don't think you can make a clear cut, <laughs> clear cut case. So that's terrible. I'm sorry. You can't make a clear, you know, I don't think that's a good, good defense, you know, comparing it to Israel. Then there's the historical argument where people will say, well, throughout church history, people have baptized infants. I also don't think that's a good argument either because throughout church history, I mean, Boy, Lutherans had people put to death that insisted on believers' baptism. I don't know if you knew that. Um, the first Baptists that were saying that we should baptize according to conscience and free will, they were put to death by reformers. They were put to death by all kinds of other different people. Like Protestants killed Baptists, you know, 1500s, 1600s, for saying that we need to baptize according to conscience and free will, right? And so you can't say just because the church did it in history that it's right. I think that's a terrible argument, you know. As Christians, you know, we've got all kinds of brothers and sisters in the past that we're, they're like our crazy uncle that we're ashamed of. You know, we're like, oh, that whole Dark Ages thing. Like, what did you do? You know, like, just because church history did it, it doesn't mean that it's right. Um, church history, they also taught baptismal regeneration, which is a heresy. So I don't think it's a good case either. Then there's the household argument. You've noticed sometimes where it says that Lydia and her whole household or the Philippian jailer and his whole household were baptized, right? So the, the, the argument goes, there has to be at least one infant in that household. Okay, I don't think that holds water either because the evidence isn't clear enough to, to just hang your hat on it. You could say, yeah, it might, it might lean towards that. Maybe that's true, but, you know, uh, one point kind of leading that way and it's real vague, so I don't go for it. Um, personally, I, don't, I, don't, I, I just don't think it holds enough weight. Conclusion on the subject of baptism here, moving right along. On the subjects of baptism, not the subject, the subjects, who should be baptized. Um, scriptural order is always believe and then be baptized. Um, baptize, baptism being the initiatory right into a believing community, into the church, therefore it should be done by believers. Um, the age of children is never mentioned in any passage that mentions household baptism. Um, you know, it's just kind of it's just inconclusive. Um, if 1 Corinthians 7.14, you know, the, he has believing parents, if the kid has believing parents, they're covered. They'll use that also and say that's, that's justification for baptizing an infant. If that is, um, then it would also require the unbelieving adults to get baptized under that same sort of logic, like if it's just the whole household. Um, if you're using the household literally and strictly, well, what about any unbelievers in the household too? It's just, it just doesn't hold weight. It's just too flimsy of a case, I think. Okay, importance of baptism moving on. Well, Christ was baptized. Um, 
obviously we can't imitate him fully. He was sinless, and his baptism has a different symbol than ours does. I mean, he was identifying with sinners, sinless Christ identifying with sinners, uh, you know. Um, but he was baptized, and I think we want to try to follow him as much as we possibly can, right? And, and so if he did it, um, I think that's good. Um, the Lord approved of his disciples baptizing, right? I mean, and even at the end of, uh, you know, Matthew, the Great Commission, he says, go baptize. Um, that verse in John, you know, you can look these verses up later if you'd like. I'm, for time's sake, I'm not going to go through them all. Uh, Christ commanded people to be baptized, talked about that. The early church gave an important place to baptism. You can look at all those verses in Acts right there. Those are all verses about the early church's, you know, importance of baptism. I know there's a lot of them there. Um, I always think we have more time when I'm preparing messages than we do. The New Testament, uh, the, the importance of baptism. The New Testament uses the ordinance to picture or symbolize an important theological truth or truths. Um, the writer of Hebrews, remember in Hebrews chapter six, verses one through two, he, he, he says, essentially he's kind of scolding him. He goes, why are you guys, you know, you need to go back to the basic foundations. You guys should be teachers, but uh, you need to go back and be fed milk again. You guys remember that section in there where he's talking about the foundational principles that they need to go back to, he lists baptism. So indirectly we get that the author of Hebrews is saying it is a foundational principle of Christian doctrine. The effect of baptism. The effect of baptism, well, you know, joy, right? Joy from a public profession of faith. I've never baptized anybody that wasn't joyful about it, you know? I mean, you get this joy uh, because you've identified with a group of people, you know, and you're, I'm in, you know? This is a happy thing, you know? God saved me. I mean, I'm no longer uh, what I was. And now here I've, I've come into this newness of Christ. So just, just joy. Joy of being able to say in front of people that I believe in Jesus Christ, that he's my Lord and my Savior. That's, that's a joyful occasion, right? How about this? Uh, the joy from reassurance of having a clear physical picture of dying and rising with Christ and washing away sins. I'll tell you what. I mean, as a believer... The devil loves to come around and try to convince you. He tries to convince you that you're not forgiven, that you're not saved, that you know that somehow you're still messed up, that you're jacked up in sins, you know. But it is kind of helpful to be able to point to your baptism and say, you know what? I understood fully the symbolism of what this meant. And I'm not saying that the salvation happened in the water. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying there was this very powerful, important ritual, this ordinance that I, I clearly know that I understand the gospel. And the gospel is that I'm forgiven of any sin, all trespasses and sins, because of my you know, faith in Christ. And, I, and I've went through this thing. And you can look to it. And it, and it gives you kind of a, uh, you know, you know, a milestone. Or, you, know. you remember in the Old Testament when they were, uh, Israel was going to go through the river, the Jordan River, and they did, and, and then God says, go back into that river, and I want you to get some rocks, and I want you to come out here, and I want you to pile them rocks up. And uh, I want you to, this is a memorial. There's all kinds of memorials through the Old Testament. Uh, you remember when Jacob woke up after he had his dream of the angels descending and ascending? What did he do the next morning? He built an, ath- an altar there. And, uh, you know, memorials, I don't think those are a bad thing. They are if you lose the meaning behind them. I think that's a bad thing. If you've got a cross necklace, but it doesn't mean anything to you, it's just superstition, you know. But if it means something to you, your baptism means something to you, you know. And you'll look back on this day and, 
you know, it'll be a source of joy. And one that I didn't put up there, it says in Peter that, you know, baptism, you know, lends towards a clean conscience, you know, not that the water does some sort of magical thing and open oh, my conscience, but again, it reminds you when the devil comes and says, oh, you're not forgiven. Well, my conscience is clean, you know, because I don't live in unconfessed sin anymore. My sins have been put on Christ. Strengthens and encourages our faith. Now, the conclusion for my case here is this. Um, it's one of two ordinances that Jesus instituted for the church. Okay, Jesus instituted it. Um, I think that really says it all. Um, the New Testament, I believe, points towards immersion as the mode it's not for believers, number three, uh, people who cannot choose for themselves. It's, it's not for unbelievers. It is for those with a credible confession and evidence of genuine faith in Christ. It is a powerful symbol. It's not a requirement for salvation, but it is required for obedience, right? It is required for obedience. If there's a Christian and they say, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure I'm saved. I just don't want to get baptized. That's kind of questionable because, you know, why would you say that with anything that Christ has commanded? You know, that's kind of like saying, well, I'm saved. I'm a Christian. God's commanded me to love my wife, but, you know, I don't want to do that. <laughs> you know, I just don't want to do it. I just don't want to love. I don't want, I don't want to do anything that, you know. You know, I think if you're a Christian, you should want to obey Christ, you know. Albeit we don't do it very well, <laughs> you know. He was the one that was perfectly obedient, right? We're not. But, man, shouldn't we have that heart that we, that we want to obey him? Um, so I've always kind of thought that was sort of weird when people don't want to get baptized, you know. Um, you don't see that in the New Testament. You see people being like, where's the water? <laughs> you know, like, get me there. Let's go, you know. Um, you know, in the early church, it was like they wanted churches, especially the early Baptists, you know. They wanted churches of believers. They didn't want churches where the whole town got baptized just as a result of being. Why would that be bad? You know, well, you're going to end up with a church full of unregenerate people, you know, um, you know, people that aren't, granted, there should be some people that are, you know, in the church that are not saved because they're coming, you know, they're going to get saved, but it shouldn't be a bunch of people that are not converted, you know what I mean? Thinking that they are the church, thinking that they're on their way to heaven. I think that's a terrible thing to do to convince a kid that, you know, or to convince somebody that they're saved because they were baptized. You know, you've, you've heard people before, you say, are you right with the Lord? They say, I've been baptized. Well, that doesn't mean anything if you're not saved, you know? I mean, so that's my conclusion there. I recommend, to, you know, commend a couple of good resources to you if you're interested in studying further. Um, Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem, G-R-U-D-E-M. He's a Calvinist, you know, so just, just so you know, we're not Calvinists, but, um, you know, he's a great scholar, um, and I recommend his Systematic Theology to you. And there's another one, uh, a great systematic theology called Basic Theology by Charles Ryrie. That's R-Y-R-I-E. And uh, great resources for you people that love to study the Lord. Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful doctrine, for this great picture. And Lord, may this just be a blessing. I thank you so much for Eve and for Jeannie and um, that they're here today. And pray, Father, that... The whole church family just comes out and we all just enjoy this special occasion uh, together, this powerful symbol. Lord, if we've been reflecting on this powerful symbol here about being united with you in your death, burial, and resurrection, and may we leave here today, Father, just 
anointed by the Spirit to continue to live that life of being united to you. And we do ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.